The reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, selected verses there, and it'll be from the New Revised Standard Version, beginning with verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people, but we ourselves are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. And then skipping down to verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for the one who for their sake died and was raised. And then verse 17, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Look, new things have come into being. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Good morning, folks. Good to be with you all today. <clears throat> my voice is really cutting out on me, so there was no E's or F's in me for that last song, or whatever those crazy notes were. And also, I'm not trying to, I got to have this today because I might lose my voice, so I'm not trying to rub in any of our bubble dwellingness as a basketball team on anybody else. That just means we don't, we're not great this year. All right, so we've been talking about reconciliation um, since, since January. It's our theme for the year in terms of our emphasis in teaching and preaching. And we are uh, taking our cue, of course, from, uh, from this passage, 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says that God in Christ or through Christ has given us as Christians, the apostles first, but us as we imitate them, a ministry of reconciliation. And in many ways, when you start to think about not only this text, but all that the Bible says about reconciliation and what started in the garden and, and got fouled up by our sin and will be uh, fixed by the cross and resurrection of Jesus, um, ultimately manifested in the new heavens, new earth, the new creation in Revelation 21 and 22, uh, as it's pictured there, it's, 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 I think, accurate to say that reconciliation in many ways is the very heart of the gospel of Christ. It's one way, one biblical way to talk about that. God is taking what was alienated in its several aspects and trying to uh, reintegrate or bring that back together to reconcile it to God um, through Christ. So we're called, uh, in imitation of Paul and the Apostles, to uh, be ministers of reconciliation. But what does that mean? That's kind of where we turned our attention to last week. If you remember, we had an interactive session in lieu of a sermon, and we explored together some concrete ways that we could apply or live out this calling in our daily lives. And so today, what we want to do is um, talk about some character traits, or maybe, uh, better put, some behavioral habits that are necessary in each of us if we indeed are going to take this ministry of reconciliation from the level of theory, good talk, to actual practice. From a mere idea to an on-the-ground on the way of living, of acting, day in, day out. That's what we want to talk about this morning for a few, a few minutes. So, 
what does it take to be a minister of reconciliation? I want to go to this text again and just kind of get a little bit granular and, come, and, and we'll see that there are at least three character traits or behavioral um, habits that are, are necessary ingredients to being uh, in a real way, not just you know theoretical way, but in a real applied way, a daily practical way, a minister of reconciliation. The first of which is service. If you look at verse 18 and we focus in on the word ministry, God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us this ministry of reconciliation. What does this word ministry mean? Now, if I just said, what does the English word ministry mean? You might think of, uh, you know, clergy, you know, pastors and preachers and priests and people like that, the ministry. But if you're talking in, you know, in a class on um, civics or you're a political science major in college, you might be talking about the ministry of education and the ministry of, you know, uh, diplomacy and the ministry of uh, all, all these different ministries, um, uh, you know, bureaucratic governmental organizations have tons of ministries. I remember watching an old Monty Python bit a few years ago that came, it was like from the 70s or something before, before I even knew who that was. And they had a, it was in Britain, of course, and there was a ministry of silly walks. And people would come in with silly walks and this bureaucrat would determine whether or not that was indeed sufficiently silly and apply the appropriate reprimand if it were not. The word ministry, though, is, it's a word that appears in the Greek, you know, original that we get our English translations from. Uh, it's the word diakonia. All right, it occurs 32 times in the New Testament. And it basically means service. That's what it means. You could translate this, God who gave us a service of reconciliation. It, it sounds more active to me. Or serving, you can even translate it that way. Um, it's from the, the word uh, diakonos, which means servant, or what else does diakonos translate at in our New Testaments? Deacon. Deacon. It's not even translated, it's just transliterated. You basically give it English letters instead of Greek letters, basically. Um, same sounds, and it's deacon. I'll have you know, though, that of these 60 times that serve, uh, diakonia and diakonos occur in the New Testament, there's only four or five of them that refer to the office of deacons. The vast majority of the time, it's talking about everybody. Um, we're all called to be servants. We're all called to serve. In fact, this is the word that we see in the original language when, if you remember the, the uh, case in Luke 10 where Mary and Martha sort of have a little tension between them because Mary is sitting at the feet of the teacher, which wasn't a typical woman's role in the ancient world. That was usually men teaching men and the women served. Martha's busy with serving, remember? And she complains. Why isn't Mary helping me? Something to that effect. The word serving there is diakonia. All right? And you can just multiply examples like that. Uh, it's not that fancy of a word. Uh, it, it just means doing a lot of stuff for other people. Um, but it's very connected to our walk as Christians. And my point here is that reconciliation involves serving. We're not going to be ministers of reconciliation if we're not servants. And if you've ever tried to bring about reconciliation, like really, between yourself and somebody else that you had tension with or a problem with, or maybe you were serving sort of as the arbiter between two estranged parties and you were trying to help these two people who have this division in their life, maybe in a church or family or at work or whatever, you know that that role of being the reconciler, the minister of reconciliation, involves a lot of effort. It involves a lot of doing, right? 
In fact, the contemporary English version translates our phrase ministry of reconciliation as work of reconciliation. Not a bad translation, because serving involves work by definition. Pursuing reconciliation is going to take significant, significant amounts of, uh, of time and maybe sizable investments of emotional effort, relational work, right? The psychological sort of energy is going to be expended. This is not just you sitting idly and thinking about what a wonderful idea of reconciliation. This is me and you being willing to put ourselves out there for other people who are estranged, alienated from God, from one another, from whatever it is. And moreover, we will, if we are in fact serving in this way as ministers of reconciliation, we will run the risk, at least sometimes, that, that the person or people on the other side of your efforts to reconcile may not be receptive. They may resent you, in fact, or even slander you. That's exactly what's going on in, in the 2 Corinthian letter. They're even doubting his apostleship. Paul spends a lot of paragraphs in 2 Corinthians saying, basically, I'm from the Lord, and you can take me or leave me, but I'm on your side. You're my witness, living witness, that I brought the gospel here. That's why you're Corinthian Christians I'm addressing in this letter. But however hard he tries, um, they're not getting it. So you can, for instance, look at 2 Corinthians 5, the first little part that Greg read. Look at this. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people, but we ourselves are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known to your conscience. In other words, we are what we are. We're trying to help you. How you look at that, us, that's on you. We know who we are. Our identity is in God. And then he says this in verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, now Paul doesn't think he's insane, but evidently there are people at Corinth who are saying Paul and his company, the apostles, are, are beside themselves, which is, you know, an idiom for saying out of your right mind. That's what you may get if you're trying to help reconcile people. I don't have the problem. You have the problem. You know, why are you getting in my business? Why are you doing all that and saying all that? That may happen. And Paul says in verse 14, for the love of Christ urges us on, or your version may say controls or compels us. Love controlling you. Love urging you on. Because we are convinced that one has died for all, Therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for the one who for their sake died and was raised. And that's why I have this opening image, by the way, of an open hand extended to reconcile, but it's receiving a closed fist. Did Christ ever, ever receive that as he became a human being? and walked the earth and taught people and was homeless half the time and was nailed to a cross. I mean, it's, it's God reaching out and imploring with his hand open to us and us going, no, we're good, we got it, just like in the Garden of Eden. And that's what's going to happen a lot of times when we try to be ministers of reconciliation. That, that is going to happen. We need to know that going in. It's not some weird thing. It's because the world and ourselves in, in, in included are sinners. We don't always think right, right? We're warped. Our hearts are warped, our actions are warped, our, our intellectual you know, processing is warped, all kinds of things are warped. Um, and that's where the gospel starts. But why was Paul calling them to do this? Because Christ's death had changed him. 
The love of Christ controlled him. And Christ's death, Paul says, means that we all have died. Anybody who's a Christian has died to self. That's the definition of it. When you're baptized, what does Romans 6 say? You're baptized into the death of Jesus and raised to walk in newness of life. So the old person, the sinful person, is actually put to death, just like Christ was put to death. And the new person that comes up out of the waters of baptism is resurrected as Christ was resurrected. It, it emulates that. It symbolizes that. It captures the essence of that uh, actual, you know, ontological you know, uh, transformation that happens in us. It's a symbol, but it's a necessary symbol. Why? He says so that we can live no longer for ourselves. And if you're living for yourself, you're not going to be a very good minister of reconciliation. It's going to take a lot out of you. Let's talk about, so that's, I'm talking people to people here. Let's talk about the vertical reconciliation for a minute. Apply it to that. If you remember, this, this is what we, how we stylize the, the estrangement between God and human beings. This vertical relationship that um, is clearly in view here as well. If we're going to be opportunistic about personal evangelism, about outreach, so, so uh, as to bring about reconciliation between our non-Christian neighbors and the God who made them, well, that's going to require some time on our part. An outlay of time. You can't just, if you're going to be a minister, you can't just fill up your schedule with every single thing under the sun and go, oh, there's no time left. Well, of course there's not, because you arrange your schedule that way. And I want to tell you something. The little Google calendar on here that I fill up with things, I think really I can take things off of it. And that's one of the biggest problems for a, a large swath of our modern world is that we get the calendar filled up, and then it's like uh, the system, I can't, there's not any time left. But we made that. And if we don't recognize that, we're not really giving God our whole self to transform. Time is one of the most valuable things we have. Buying up the time is how Colossians puts it when it says we need to be people-oriented toward outreach. He says buying up the time, or redeeming the time, or buying up the opportunity in Colossians. When we're praying for a door for the word to be open, remember that, that series from back in last year? Maybe not. Um, I do. Anyway, um, check it out. That, that's, that's a requirement. Not only time, effort. Maybe some risk of rejection. They won't re be rejecting you, probably. They'll be rejecting the Lord, but still it's going to feel that way. May, opening up your home for hospitality. Money may be involved. Prepping time, all that. And we can apply it to creation care as well. One of the other things that humans are estranged from, remember? The ground gets cursed after sin. And if you remember, ground is the Hebrew word adamah, earth, soil, ground. And Adam is adam. Human means ground dweller. We're so intimately connected to the earth. So when the ground is cursed, that's the reversing or the... You know, a wedge being driven between humans and their God-given role announced in Genesis 1.27 when they're first made in the image of God there to be fruitful, multiply, you know, fill the earth and reign over it. Genesis 2.15 there to protect and serve the garden is what the literal Hebrew means there. And now the ground is cursed. So we got problems with ourselves being alienated from creation. We botch it every day. And what do we do about that? Well, Again, servanthood is, is, is part of the calling here. If we're going to work to restore humanity's God-intended relationship with the rest of creation, well, that's going to take some intentionality on our part. That may require the discomfort of rethinking some things. 
Doesn't the gospel always cause that? Maybe some things we've long taken for granted and thought, well, that's just the normal way. Well, a lot of sinners think their sinful life is the normal way. It's not much of an argument, really. Maybe we're going to have to adopt better habits. So, I want us to put, at this point in the lesson, ask ourselves candidly, how much of what I do in my day-in, day-out life is just living for myself? Paul says, since Christ died out of love for me, I am now constrained or urged on by that love, and I have died. All followers of Jesus have died, and I'm no longer living for myself. To what, what extent have I died to self because of the love of Christ? So the point here, the upshot of all this is that being a servant, being a minister, is going to re require a disposition of self-sacrifice. Jesus said as much in Matthew 20. You remember there that they're trying to jockey for position in his kingdom. And I want to be number two after you, Jesus. And you can have number one. That's cool. But I'll take number two. No, I want number two. And they're arguing over who can be what. And Jesus says that that's basically how the world works. That's how the Gentiles, the nations think. People are trying to you know, be on, on, uh, above each other and over each other and in control of each other and all that. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your diakonos your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It, it's basically the thing Jesus did. That's what, that's what we're talking about. Just the basic thing he did by leaving heaven, incarnating, living and dying on earth and for the world. We're called to emulate that. We see it in Paul's writing too. If we skipped on down from 2 Corinthians 5, the text we've been looking at, and just a few verses away, he continues the thought really well into chapter 6 about reconciliation. And in chapter 6, verse 3, uh, he says, Paul does, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God we commend ourselves in every way. Look at the things he went through. By great endurance... In afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Why? That's what the ministry of reconciliation looked like for him. As he went around the Mediterranean basin, you know, taking the gospel to people and hanging out for two or three years, showing them what it meant on the ground. That's what he often got. And he responded with, verse 6, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, and it goes on and on and on. And why is Paul operating in this counterintuitive way? I mean, this doesn't make any sense from a worldly logic. And the answer is he's, he's concerned about his ministry. This ministry of reconciliation. He is a servant. Right? He's not a lord. He's a servant. And so he is trying to make sure that everything he does commends that ministry. It's God's, after all, in every way. All right, so we're going to have to be servants. We're going to develop servant hearts if we're going to be involved in a ministry of reconciliation. There's a selflessness, there's a, a, a sacrificial nature to that that is just part of the definition of it. Secondly, it involves our speech. Another essential ingredient. And you can see this in verse 19. He not only calls it a ministry of reconciliation, we read in verse 19 that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and notice it, entrusting 
the message of reconciliation to us. It's a ministry, but the ministry involves a message of reconciliation, a corresponding teaching, a corresponding word or communication of some sort. And in fact, this word message, sorry to nerd up on the Greek today, but it just it happened by chance. Um, some of the points, you know, I think are brought out better by highlighting this. The word lagos, you know, a lot of us know from John 1 where we read the word, it's translated word there. In the beginning was the word, nothing was made without the word, and it turns out the word is Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14, and we by virtue of that beheld the glory of God, full of grace and truth. This word is all over the New Testament. Lagos is, it, it, I don't remember how many times, I want to say two, three hundred. You can look that up later. It doesn't matter. A lot. It basically means speech or word or communication. Right? It means word. So if you're old enough and you like one of the points in the sermon, you can say instead of word, word up, you can say logos. <laughs> kind of a nerdy, old-timey amen. Um, but the, the point here is simple. The ministry of reconciliation isn't just about deeds. It's also about words. It's not only about doing, it's about speaking. So, by definition, again, ministers of reconciliation are not only servants, they are that, 100%, but they're also communicators. Now, why is that important? Well, you can, you can sort of go through the motions of a lot of the things the gospel would call you to do ethically. You can care about the needy and the marginalized, and you can spend part of your family budget or um, assign it to helping people in the community who need help. You can reach out and do all sorts of things and not even be a believer. Right? You can just be a, a, a social activist. Um, and a lot of that stuff will square up with what Jesus taught, honestly. But it's not okay to leave it there. And there's impulses, I think, especially if some of us who are more sensitive than others to you know, what people think about us and things like that, or maybe we're more diplomatic. And, you know, and, and, and Satan can use that against us so that we never come, get around to saying, this is about Jesus Christ. I want you to understand, this, this isn't just... Social activism, I'm doing this out of love for Jesus. I got this from Jesus. And it all reflects back on Him. People will see your good works, as Jesus Himself said in the Sermon on the Mount, and as they notice your good works, they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. And we've got to connect the dots for them at some point. What distinguishes the gospel ministry of reconciliation from mere Activism, social activism or something like that. And, and it's that we tie our good works, if we're doing the servant things, to the biblical story. To the biblical story. And that brings up the importance of knowing our own story. Knowing the story of the Bible and of Jesus Christ, which stretches from creation to new creation. Right? And I really appreciate Ben today you know, highlighting the timeline. That's why we did the timeline with the symbols. Those are just mnemonic devices to express in a, in a really you know, uh, kernelized form so we can remember it better. The, the macro story, the big picture. We don't get lost in the, the, the trees, you know. And we're talking to somebody, some nuance of doctrine, they don't even care yet. It's like a salesman sitting down and the first thing he wants to talk about is some really technical thing that's not going to apply to your office and the price. That's horrible. Wait, it, it, I don't know if John Duras is here, but you don't, you gotta be, there's got to be value built first. You gotta talk, they got to want your thing first. 
then the price doesn't look so bad, maybe. Right? You don't just start off going, let me tell you some language you can't understand, and then I'll tell you it costs you $40 million a year. No one's going to want that. And I think sometimes we do that. I want to argue with you over this ism or that ism for about three months. I don't even know what the thing, the ism is about or from yet. So we've got to know the story. I would argue that's the main thing we need to know, is the, the big picture. It stretches from creation to new creation, but Jesus Christ is the plot's pivot point, isn't he? That's why we've got to mention the name of Christ. What is the message that we've got to speak? The message has to do with Christ. He's the, not only the pivot point of the story, but he's the protagonist of the story. This is a really unique story in the sense that, you know, the, the one who creates the story enters the story. It starts hurting your brain when you think about it. And we've got to talk about sin, which is the main plot problem. You know, every plot has a problem that develops, a tension. Uh-oh, there's a problem that the protagonist is dealing with. And that problem is sin in Genesis 3. So we have to talk to people about, in a basic way, the fall that happened in Eden. And then how that, that is replicated, that fall is, in the fall of every human being, every human life. We all live kind of the Genesis narrative, in a way. We're in need of the same things they were in need of, reconciliation. Because we're alienated from God and from others, and people groups are alienated from people groups, and races and nations and so on, and us and creation, we're, we're a hot mess now. It's not how God made it. Look how he made it, and look what happened. How do we fix that? Well, Jesus enters the story, and he does it in a certain way. This basic history of God's redemptive plan is part of it, where we talk about the promise to Abraham, the heart, and our, our, where God first announces there's hope. I'm, I'm going to create a people, and through them is gonna, a, a, a descendant is going to come who's going to bless all the nations of the earth. And our memory verse, the nation of Israel is going to be a light to the nations. That's why we have that in there. Israel is a huge part of this story. Because through Israel will come a Messiah who is the king of the world, Jesus, the Christ, the Jewish Christ. And he will be God's vehicle for bringing Christ into the world. And even Israel's sin and bondage could not prevent that from happening. So we tell the story. And we talk about how then that, that sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross frees you, if you accept him, from your sins. And his res resurrection foreshadows our own resurrection. In fact, the resurrection of the entire cosmos, the new heavens and new earth, all of that is coming. And finally, when it's here, God and humanity will live together and thrive together and work together forever in a world where sin's curse is no longer. We got to talk about, how long did that take me? Three minutes? And then we listen and we apply it if somebody's interested and, you know, we love on them and serve them, but you, you can't just not talk about Jesus. Go around doing good deeds and not connect it to the reason for it. So there's a message. And as we communicate this message with our neighbors, we are Christ's ambassadors, as he puts it. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors speak, right? They're sent by the king or the president or the prime minister or whomever and they, they show up, and they're not just making it up. They have a message that they need to be faithful to as they relay the wishes of the one who sent them to the other party. And that's what we are. We're ambassadors. And I think something that we need to talk about right quick here before we leave this point that is very apropos of the culture and society that we live in, uh, in our day, is that being an ambassador involves... A lot of things, 
one of them, as he says a few verses later down in chapter 6, is that we, we put no obstacle, no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we're commending ourselves in every way. Think about that. Put no obstacle out there. I read the other day about one of the elected leaders in the, Amer- in the U.S. Congress um, who has said, I'm a Christian. Saying also, a few weeks later, that civil war is needed in this country. Blue states and red states need to divide off. People are telling me that every day. This person had said and has said publicly over and over and over, yeah, I believe in Christian nationalism. Does that sound like reconciliation to you? Equating the name Christian with war so you can get elected again? And, and what, to what extent, that's, not, that's putting obstacles out there. Look at any survey you want of what people think today about Christianity. Look up words like Christian, Bible, evangelical, and the like, and see what the associations are in a lot of young folks' minds out there because of this stuff that's going on. This will not age well, I guarantee you. We're in a moment. But let's not us be caught up in it. Because that's putting obstacles in the way, I, I promise you. You're now 40 points in the hole when you start talking to somebody about Jesus. Jesus, are you kidding me? I don't know much about him, but I don't want any of that. I don't really want to have another civil war if it's okay. This person wasn't kidding. It doesn't look like. And that kind of stuff, it just inundates our news. You know, people are, I I think, laughing all the way to the bank while, you know, the people are taking them seriously out there on the other end of their their broadcasts or their blog posts or whatever. And we need to be careful about what we are representing. Be careful with your media post, your social media post. Think about what gets you so angry and jazzed up. Is it somebody assailing the name of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus? Or is it something about your culture and your society and some identity you have that's probably somewhere else? Jesus went on the one occasion when he identifies his own character. There's only one place where he says, this is what I am in the sense of, of, of character. And it's, from, it's Matthew eleven twenty eight, And he says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I don't know many places where he says, here are my character traits. He says, I'm the, I'm the son of man and things like that. But where he goes, here's my, here's my personality. Here's my disposition toward other people. Gentle and lowly. And you will find rest to your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I, I commend to you a book by Dane Ortland, a little bitty book, quick read, called Gentle and Lowly, where he just... Uh, expounds on that, those, two, those two phrases and many, many aspects of, of that. And ask yourself what is for, if what passes for Christian, Christianity out in the political, sociocultural, you know, culture wars, how much it looks like the Jesus on the pages of our Bibles. And try to think from that out rather than, you know, our culture wars back in. Because you're going to skew the Bible and you're going to be cherry picking stuff right and left. And ignoring tons of stuff. And we will be putting obstacles in people's way. I'm sorry to talk about that right now. There's just almost no way I can make this point without, and, and feel good about myself this week. So I hope you, hope you will take that as uh, intended. In love and, I hope, instruction. Thirdly, 
we've got to be people who are always introspective, soul-searching. We can't really be ministers of reconciliation if we're not servant-hearted people in practical, real ways on a daily basis. We can't do that if we're not willing to speak the name of Jesus and His story, the biblical story. And we can't really be effective ministers of reconciliation if we're not searching our own souls all the time. I'm talking here about deep, honest self-examination. So that even as we are seeking to bring other people into a reconciliation with God, we are also continually attending to our own relationship with God. Look at verse 20. So we are ambassadors for Christ, Paul writes, since God is making His appeal through us. And then he says this kind of turns toward them directly. We entreat you on behalf of Christ. You be reconciled to God. Now he's not talking to rank sinners here. I mean, he's talking to rank sinners, but they're, they're Corinthians after all. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they're a little better in 2 Corinthians in some ways maybe. But, um, I mean, we're all Corinthians, you know, essentially. Uh, truth be told, from God's perspective. And the Corinthian church is addressed in not only 2 Corinthians, but also 1 Corinthians in the opening paragraph as the church of God at Corinth, people called to be saints. With those who call on the name of the Lord everywhere, he says in, in the first, chapter, first book. Isn't that amazing? And then you read what they're like. So God hadn't given up on them yet. I think sometimes we're a little more narrow than God in some of these things. How are they saints and called and a church, the ecclesia called out, if they're doing the things we read? He's telling them not to, don't get me wrong. But he hasn't said, you're out. You're in, you're out. You're in, you're out. You're in, you're out. You send it out, you're in. You're out, you're in. You're in. like that. But he's telling them, you better make sure you're reconciled. And folks, let's turn that on ourselves. And to help us do that, I want to look at one more little nerdy Greek point. Sorry about this. Kind of a grammar thing here. This word for be reconciled, you can see the arrows point down to just the, the words be reconciled. It's from one Greek word, two English words, one Greek word. Be reconciled is from this word katalasso. And it's really interesting. I think there's, I, I hate to, you know, just indulge me for a second. It's a point of grammar, but I think it, it, you know, grammar is, you're using it all the time whether you care about it or not. Everybody hates it, but when you don't attend to it, sometimes you, have mis, you make mistakes in understanding each other. We do as humans. It's both passive and imperative. So verbs have voice, like passive, active, right? They also have mood, what's called mood, which you may or may not have learned about. But, you know, I didn't know what mood was until I started looking, you know, learning other, like New Testament Greek or trying to learn French or German when I was in, in college, different things like that. You learn about these things and they're, they're happening in your own language. You just don't recognize them until you get outside and look at another language. So voice is passive or active. Mood is, there's indicative, imperative, subjunctive, and so on. And each of these affect the meaning. So let me just really briefly tell you what I'm saying here. Because it has, a, it has takeaway practical points for how we live, how we minister to people. It's in the passive voice. So notice he says, be reconciled. He doesn't say, reconcile yourselves. That would be active. There's another way. The Greek word would have a different ending. Okay, sometimes there's, there's endings that show us this. So it's in the passive voice means... He's not telling you, go figure it out by your own bootstraps how to get reconciled. You do it. He's saying, be reconciled. Do you see the difference? It's passive. In other words, reconciliation is already hanging out there as an option. You need to open yourself. It's like the signal's being broadcast. You've got to put your antenna up and receive it or tune it in on the radio, if that makes any sense to people nowadays. 
You know, it's, it's out there. You're, are you receiving it? It's being transmitted. What's your receiver look like? Okay? You can't, you're not making the broadcast. You're not sending out the transmission. Reconciliation would never be an option had God not initiated it. So God is the one that makes it happen, potentially. This is something God makes possible. We can see this in 2 Corinthians 5.18, just a couple of verses above where he says, All this is from God. New creation, this ministry of reconciliation, all of this is from God. You're not going to be dutiful enough and smart enough and strong enough and devoted enough to make reconciliation happen had not God already done it. So you can't do it yourself. But on the other hand, it's in the imperative mood, which, is, which means it's a command. It's not an indicative like the cat walked across the street. Imperative would be walk your cat across the street. You can't walk a cat, but walk your dog across the street. You know, the dog walked across the street. That's just a statement. It's, in, it's in, indicative. Imperative means somebody's commanding you to do something. And that's in the word katalasso. That's the root form there. That I'm not showing you all the conjugations that, that indicate this. But anyway, this logically applies that we have a choice, implies that we have a choice. Commands Im imply that we could not do it, right? We're not robots. We're not just wired to automatically. Otherwise, the command makes no sense. So he's saying you need to... It's like Galatians 5, where the Holy Spirit is coming for you, wants you, is out there for you, but you're told what? To walk with the Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit. It's a, a thing you've got to do, but all you're really doing is going, I'm open to you. I'm disposed to you in a different way to receive you. I'm going to bring in the signal, if you will. So God is doing the reconciling, but we've got to allow him to do it to us. And that raises the question then, I think a very practical question from just this stuff. What is your disposition toward God? What is my disposition toward him? How open am I? How open are you to the biddings of your Lord? He is continually imploring, right? All the time. How are you responding? He is knocking. How widely are we opening the doors of our hearts to Him? And so the upshot of all this is we need an openness to God. We need to be malleable, shapeable, formable. We need to be receptive to Him. An ongoing willingness to be changed to be transformed. You know, the irony often is that religious people are sometimes the very worst at this. Literally. I mean, the very worst. Because God's on their side. People who are wrong, who think God's on their side, side, are way worse wrong than people who, I don't even know if God exists. Might be wrong. When you're wrong and you think, God, you think you're right with the backing of the divine, you're the worst thing that ever happened on this planet. And let's not be those people. Too often we're more interested in proving our rightness than pursuing righteousness. There's a difference. I'm so uncomfortable that you might be asking me to change something I think or have always thought or I need to do something else. This is normal. I, well, that's what everybody says. 
Every sinner who is not interested. You know, everybody's got an idea of normal. That, that's no argument at all, honestly. That just means I don't want to do what I don't want to do. And we are called to something better than that. We need to care more about our status before God than the status quo. And we've got to remember that one of the most insidious enemies of true righteousness is actually self-righteousness. This conviction that we've arrived spiritually, we've got it figured out. We're the good guys. It's those people, however you want to fill in the blank there, that are the bad people. We have met the enemy and the enemy is us, the Bible would tell us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's who Jesus wants to do business with. I thank you, Lord, that you've not revealed it to the wise and understanding, but to children. That's when he says, come unto me, all you who are, who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And Paul's example certainly is apropos of this point. He was the, could we not agree, the ultimate minister of reconciliation, aside from the Lord himself? The one who wrote these words had practiced them and would continue to practice them to his death. He's the ultimate minister, servant of reconciliation. And he was continually and honestly assessing his own relationship with God. So much so that this apostle could write in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I don't think he's right. Do you? I think I'm a worse sinner than the apostle. I don't know everything he did. My goodness, the bar that the Apostle Paul has set in terms of sacrifice, the things he was willing to endure and still keep on loving on people because he was so compelled, controlled by the love of Christ. I don't think I'll ever get to that level. And he calls himself the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. 1 Corinthians 9, 27 he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And Paul knew that every single new morning that God granted him, every time he got up out of bed, he had to resolve a fresh new day, new resolution to die to self. I die every day, he wrote. In 1 Corinthians 15, 31. I die daily, some versions put it. All right. So we all, no doubt, have plenty to work on, beginning with me. In developing the, the self-sacrificing mentality of, of a true servant. In working on the boldness and the skill to speak the Bible story. To speak Jesus clearly. And the humble habit of continually introspectively searching our own souls. That's, those are just some basic ingredients if we're going to really be, as a church, ministers of reconciliation. So we all got a lot of work to do, I'm guessing. Some of you have less to, of, uh, work to do than me, I'm sure. But I want to leave you with a question. When should we start? How, should, how soon should we begin this work? And I want to close by just, sitting, just simply letting the Apostle Paul answer. Uh, a couple verses later, chapter 6, same context, he says this. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And he quotes an Old Testament text and says, For in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. 
Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's all stand and sing together.